For the past couple of weeks, we've uh, parked in Genesis 14, considering various themes. Our first focus was upon Lot and the consequences of his choice to associate with uh, a wicked people. And that one was more rooted in what we actually see in the text itself. Then last week, we, uh, we, well, the week after that, actually, we talked about this idea of the Most High God, and we considered the thematic importance of that phrase, the Most High God. Uh, we talked about how that's uh, being uh, misinterpreted or, or, or skewed today in, in modern theology, recognizing, however, that title for our Lord. Then last week, we talked about Melchizedek, and we thought about uh, the concept of Uh, who Melchizedek was, uh, uh, why he's presented in Scripture, how he's presented in Scripture, recognizing that it's intended to draw us in a very early stage of of the Scriptures to the lessons that will will bear fruit in the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. And there's one more theme that I want to talk about in Genesis 14 before we move on. It's another first, another law of firsts that we've spoken of. It's the first time we've seen the Most High God. It's the first time, of course, Melchizedek is introduced. And it is also the first time in Scripture, in Genesis 14, that we see mention of the tithe. And we talked about that a little bit last week through Hebrews in connection with the idea that Abram gave tithes of all to Melchizedek. And this submission of Abram to Melchizedek through the tithe was also a thematic and spiritual submission of the Levitical priesthood to this Melchizedekian, if you will, priesthood, this higher priesthood uh, that was intended to show that that the Levitical priesthood was not the end-all, be-all of God's plan, but that it was for a time and for a place and for a people and would give way to something greater, namely to grace. So we talked about these things, but what we didn't talk about is the tithe Itself, The idea of tithe is one that has carried over throughout history from this very early idea in Melchizedek's day all the way to how many churches teach and operate today. And this first instance of the tithe helps us gain insight into what it is, what it isn't, and how we have the privilege of relating ourselves to it today. And that's what I'd like to talk about today is how we relate ourselves to this idea of the tithe. So we dig into the text again. The incident in question is found in verses 18 through 20 of Genesis 14, where the Bible says this. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him, that would be Melchizedek blessing Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed the Most High God, which which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, that would be Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, tithes of all. Now, we said last time when we were together that the word tithe is simply an older English word for the idea of a tenth, one-tenth or ten percent. It's a fine translation of the Hebrew word, which uh, does, in fact, mean a tenth or ten percent. And what we have observed here is that Abram, having received the spoils of war after the destruction of the five-kingdom confederacy that was led by Chirileomer, proceeded first and foremost to give one-tenth of his increase to this man Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, as a representative of the Most High God. In fact, this was effectively all that Abram took of the spoils of war, 
The Bible tells us that he allowed those men that were with him, the, 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 his own confederacy, right, the, the, the brothers that he was living in the same proximity with, that he allowed them to take what they wanted, that he allowed them to re, his, his servants to replenish their stocks from it. But he rejected the remainder of the spoils, the Bible says, because he was certain that in taking even the smallest amount of increase from the king of Sodom, that the king would then use this as a pretense to glorify himself as the man who made Abram rich. And Abram, understanding that, he kept himself as far away as possible from association with this wicked man, lest he even be caught up in association to the extent that God's glory would be minimized through the king of Sodom's false glorying uh, in Abram's possessions. And this is all that we actually see about the tithe in the early chapters of Genesis. No context or reason was necessarily given why Abram did this thing. We find no particular purpose. All that we find is that he gave one-tenth to Melchizedek. Our next instance, however, of the tithe in the scriptures gives us a little bit more clarity. And this instance appears when Jacob had fled his family. He had just uh, stolen the blessing from Esau, if you recall. He'd already, take, he'd already uh, purchased the birthright. Now he had stolen the blessing and his mother sends him up to her family in Haran uh, because she was fearful uh, of what Esau would do. So Jacob has just left his family. He's running to his mother's family in Haran and he has a dream. And in that dream, he sees a ladder that is set up from earth to heaven with angels of God ascending and descending on that ladder. When we pick up there in the account in Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 13, the Bible says this, And behold, the Lord stood above it, that would be this vision of the ladder, and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth." And thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. Okay, so Jacob is fleeing his family, and his land. And if we understand this from his perspective and from what, what, what this vision does to Jacob, what we understand is that Jacob is in a place of deep vulnerability. He is leaving this land, perhaps wondering if he will ever return, perhaps wondering if he will ever see his father and his mother again, perhaps thinking through the idea of the promises of God. We know that Abraham and Isaac were deeply connected to the land because they understood the promises of that land, the promise that God gave to Abram. We'll see the promise as he reiterates it to Isaac. Now, Jacob knows and believes that he is the next recipient of those promises. He has the birthright. He has the blessing. They are supposed to be his, but he's leaving the land of promise. And this makes him very, very uncomfortable. We'll see the same sort of instance again on the tail end of things when they come down into Egypt. He comes down into Egypt, but he's intent on getting back to that land. He tells his sons, I need to be buried in the land. You need to get back to the land because the land is the place of God's promises. And he's leaving that land and he doesn't know what's going to happen next. 
He doesn't know if he'll see his father again. He doesn't know if he'll see his mother again. He knows his brother wants to kill him because he, he took his blessing. He's in a very, very vulnerable place. And it is here that God appears to him in a dream and he comforts him. And there's a lot of times where God will do this with us. It's in that place of vulnerability that God reassures us, even as we just sang and we talked about from Psalm 37. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. It's in those times of vulnerability where these assurances that I have been young and now I am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread. It's when, it's when we, we're in a place of vulnerability that those assurances have their most power in our lives. So God promises to Jacob at this time that he would bring him back into the land and that he would be blessed as God had promised to bless Abraham and Isaac, that his posterity would be blessed above the families of the earth. The same promise that we saw given to Abram, we'll consider it even more starting next week in Genesis, well, sort of next week. Next week we're getting into Genesis 15, but we have a few things to cover before we actually start talking about the text itself. So Jacob awakes from this dream and he is brought to a point of decision. And we continue to read about that point of decision uh, in verse 17. The Bible says, And he was afraid, that would be Jacob, and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So Jacob, seeing this vision and understanding what God had just promised to him, he comes to a determination. He says, if God will do this for me, if he will be with me, if he will protect me, if he will care for me and bring me back to my father's house, then the Lord shall be my God. Now, this statement, we talked a little bit this morning as we were talking about sharing the gospel. This statement almost re resounds in our ears as an ultimatum of some sort, right? God, you will only be my God if you do this thing for me. But we know that that's not what Jacob's saying. And the reason why we know that that's not what Jacob is saying is because God regards this idea and because this is completely inverted from the way faith works, from the way God operates. God does not operate on the idea that, that we say, well, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. God doesn't operate on those terms. Faith always precedes blessing. God blesses faith. Faith comes before the blessing. And so this is not actually an ultimatum here. This is a different kind of conditional statement. Jacob is most certainly saying that God's promise to him is why he will place his confidence in God. He isn't reflecting upon doubt or contingency. It's the difference between uh, me saying to my kids, children, if you uh, get your rooms clean in a timely manner, then I will take you down to the lake and swim. This is a strongly conditional statement, a very strongly conditional statement. Uh, it may or may not happen, right? If they get their rooms clean in time, then on the condition that they have done the work that they're supposed to do, they will then be allowed to go down to the lake and swim. Very conditional. 
However, I can use a conditional statement in a way that is different, can't I? In the Greek, we call these first, second, and third class conditions. I can also say it this way. Well, if your room is clean, then we can go down to the lake. I'm still using the conditional if, right? If your room is clean. But that if actually carries with it a different kind of emphasis. I could replace that if with since, and it would make sense, right? Well, since your room is clean, we can go down to the lake. However, within our vernacular, within our methods of communication, we still leave a conditional flavor to it. There was a condition to be met, and that condition was in fact met. Therefore, I'm going to do my end of the, uh, my, my, my part, my end. Jacob says here to God, if you will indeed do these things for me, then, 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 then you're my God. And that's similar to what Jacob is saying. God has made these promises to me. Therefore, how can I do anything but make God my God? So at this point, Jacob came to a point of decision. God will be my God and he will be my God because he has made such promises to him. And in that this is the case, Jacob does two things to express to God his determination to serve him. First, he sets up a pillar and he pours oil, uh, 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 the rocks into a pillar, the rocks that he had used for his pillow. He pours oil upon that and he calls that place Bethel, meaning in the Hebrew, house of God. Beth being house, El being God. And second, Jacob determines that he says, I will give the Lord a tenth or a tithe of everything that the Lord has given to me. And in this account, the second time where we see this idea of a tenth, we begin to get a better understanding of what a tithe religiously was intended to be. In both cases, whether we look at Jacob's case or Abram's case, it was the tenth of one's increase given to God. In Abram's case, it was given to the, the representative of God and the priest, Melchizedek as a way of giving to the ministry of the man or giving to the Lord through him, as a show of thanksgiving, of trust, and of humility to the Lord God. Notice what he says here. All that thou shalt give to me, I will give thee a tenth. Jacob is going to acknowledge at this point that his life is in the Lord's hands. That as he lives from day to day, the things that he is going to receive, he is committed at this point to believing that he has received them out of the goodness of the Lord to him. That they are in fact the Lord's possessions because the Lord is the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And that the Lord is seeing fit to give of his possessions a certain portion to Jacob, of which Jacob will acknowledge by giving a tenth back to the Lord. So that as we think through this idea, this is what we will see the tithe become throughout the whole of the Old Testament. The tithe featuring heavily in the ceremonial law of the nation of Israel, the law of Moses. The nation being charged with giving multiple tithes throughout their year. And the children of Israel were expected by this covenant, the law of Moses, to give a tenth of the fruit of their increase to the Lord. It was called in the law, holy unto the Lord, set apart unto the Lord, unequivocally given to him, his by right. So that as we look throughout the law, as we look at how the tithe progresses throughout the Old Testament, to withhold this tithe from God 
as a child of Israel was to rebel against God, to blaspheme God, to strip from God his honor and his right. See, it's not that God needed money. With God, it's never about money. God doesn't need money. It was about worship. It was about trust. In Abram's day, it was about trust. It was about worship. It was about honoring God. In Jacob's day, this is what Jacob says. It's about acknowledging that God is the giver of all things. It's about giving back to God a portion of what he has given to us as a means by which to reflect unto him his worth, as a means by which to reflect unto him trust. This is the object of giving. This is the object of what he was commanding in the tithe. He was commanding worship. Men who gave the first tenth of their increase unto God as a means to reflect unto him the worth that is due unto his name, the love that they have for him, and the trust that they have in his provision. And perhaps the clearest expression of this teaching in the Old Testament is found in the book of Malachi, where God says this to the nation of Israel. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me, speaking to Israel, Judah, But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse. For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. Improve me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. So God makes a challenge to the children of Israel here. He first accuses them of robbing him in that they have refused to give of their tithes and their offerings. Now, again, this has nothing to do with owing God money. That's the, meta, that, that, that's the physical picture. That's the, that, that, that's the reality of the command. But it's only representative. Much to the contrary, it has everything to do with owing God worship, owing God submission, owing God trust, owing God love. These are the things they had robbed God of. And the lack of obedience to the covenant they had made with God to give their tithes to the temple was an outward and an obvious reflection of their failure to trust and submit to God. The outward failure to give of their tithes and their offerings was reflective of the inward failure of their hearts to regard God and to worship Him properly, to trust Him and to submit to Him. That was the idea here. So God was being robbed, but it wasn't intrinsically that he didn't have enough money because they weren't giving money to him. God doesn't need your money. They were robbing him of what was due unto him as creator, as sustainer, as God, as father. The worship that was due unto his name. So God tells them this. He challenges them. He says, try me. Test me. Give of your tithes and your offerings as you're commanded to do in the law even if you feel you can't afford to do so, and see if I will not bless you abundantly for it, so that you won't even have room to store the increase of that which I will give back to you. Now, one more thing before we move out of the Old Testament. Within the scope of God's law, the tithe was intended, as we have seen before, uh, going all the way back even to Genesis, to be a reflection of worship and trust. But it was also an important part of God's design as it related to the economy in Israel. It wasn't uh, a necessarily important part of God's design pre-Israel. We, we don't know what Jacob did with that 10%. He says, I will give uh, a tenth back to you of all that you give to me. Uh, but we have no record of what that meant. We don't know. 
Abram gave tithes to Melchizedek. Uh, did he do that regularly? Was that just a one-time thing? We don't know. But once the law is enacted, we know what that tithe was, was supposed to do. That tithe was to be given to, to bring about the, the functional religious system within Israel. It served a threefold design in Israel. First, it served the purpose of caring for the priests of the land so that they could devote themselves to the temple. Numbers chapter 18, verses 23 through 28, I'm not going to take you there. But it tells us that the priests of the nation had no inheritance of their own in the land. They, they were not given an inheritance. The Levites were not given an inheritance. Instead, God said, the Lord is your inheritance. Their inheritance was that they got to serve the, t- the tabernacle. Their inheritance was that they got to serve in, in a role of, of teaching the people the law within the land. But what this meant, because they had no inheritance, is that they were not going to be able to necessarily live off of an inheritance, right? They didn't have a land to plow and to till. They lived in the suburbs of other cities, cities of refuge. So they would live off of the tithes of the producers of the land. Everyone else would produce. The Lord would bless them. And then as the Lord blessed them, the Lord was blessing them because they were being obedient. A part of them being obedient was the Levites teaching them the law and keeping them uh, conscious of the Lord's expectations. So as the Levite did their part, The people would obey. As the people obeyed, the Lord would bless the people. The people would give their tithes to the Levites, and then the Levites would live. Now, the second practical purpose of this tithe was very personal with respect to the offerings of animals particularly. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, the Bible tells us that the people were commanded at times to uh, tithe by giving the first fruits of their flocks. And they were not always commanded to go to the tabernacle to see that first fruit burnt. But there were many times where they would simply go to the gate of their own city. And they would there kill this uh, animal and they would eat. And the Bible says that in these feasts of Thanksgiving, they would share this with their families. And so it would be a time of personal worship as they would give of the first fruits and, and, and give personally of that first fruit so that their family might come together and worship the Lord personally to eat in their own gate with their loved ones. That's in Deuteronomy 12. And then there was also a third function of the tithe that was uh, described in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 26. In this tithe, God commands the nation specifically to a celebration that that they would make where they had entered into the land, they found their rest, they would celebrate this by tithing to the Lord. And within this celebration, within this tithe, found in Deuteronomy 26, verse 13 says that they were to take that tithe, that the animals that they, that they slew as they celebrated the Lord bringing them out of the land of Egypt, and they were to distribute it to the strangers and the fatherless and the widows in the land. So that a portion of the tithe was also to go to those who were in need, depending on the particular celebration. Provide for the priests, bless the, the, worship together as a family, and then worship by generosity unto others. And all of these were a reflection of giving unto the Lord. And this is what we find in the Old Testament related to the tithe. We learn that men gave a tenth of the first of their increase unto the Lord as a direct means of worship unto Him. And that brings us to the New Testament. And within the scope of the New Testament, this is what we find. We find the tithe mentioned seven times in the New Testament. Three times we find it mentioned in the Gospels. 
as Jesus is describing the customs of Israel under the law of Moses. Four times we find it in the book of Hebrews as Paul is describing Abraham giving tithes to Melchizedek. And that's it. What we don't actually find is any command in the New Testament to tithe. Tithing is not a New Testament concept, actually. And this is perhaps surprising. It's also very interesting. Because the church has almost unequivocally taught the tithe throughout its history. And most certainly, the church, this one included, relies upon the tithes of God's people in order to operate. So the next thing we do then is we think through this and we discuss why is it then that the tithe is still taught? Should it be taught? What does the New Testament teach us about giving? Where do we and where ought we to rest on these issues? Because though I can confidently say that the tithe is not a New Testament concept, I can just as confidently say that God definitely expects his people to give. So what do we do here? How do we reconcile these concepts? And the differentiations that we find in the scripture, we find this idea of the tithe. We also want to introduce you to a second concept that we find all throughout the scriptures uh, that's connected oftentimes to the tithe, and that concept is called the first fruits. Going all the way back to Cain and Abel, we find the idea of first fruits. That Cain and Abel brought the first fruits of their offering unto the Lord. So we read in Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground, of the fruit of the ground, an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. So Cain and Abel, the Bible says, both brought of that which was theirs. We see explicitly it says that Abel brought of the first fruits. It doesn't actually say that Cain brought of the first fruits. Uh, when we were there in Genesis chapter 4 some time ago, we talked through the reasons why it may have been that the Lord had respect unto Abel's offering, not unto Cain's. We talked about the heart with which Cain brought it, the fact that he perhaps did not bring uh, uh, an offering of blood, which maybe is what God required of him. But But perhaps it is as well uh, that the Bible explicitly says Abel brought of the first fruits and maybe Cain did not. Maybe Cain brought of the worst. Maybe he uh, took all of the good stuff and he put it away somewhere for himself. And then he took the stuff that's kind of old and kind of rotten and kind of no longer worth a whole lot. And he said, Lord, this is this is what I'm going to give to you. We don't exactly know, but we do see here explicitly that Abel brought of the firstlings of the flock. And uh, Cain brought simply of the fruit of the ground. So we see this first fruits idea. And the point, even in the firstborn generation of man, was that they were giving a first fruits offering to the Lord. That's similar to the tithe. This first fruits idea is intended to show worship and trust. Worship in that it gives to God a portion of my sustenance and increase. Showing God that he is higher in value and priority than the physical things, worthy of my physical things, and then also trust, because I am giving to God the first, not the last. I'm giving to God the best, not the worst. I am saying, God, I am going to give you the first of what I have and then trust you that that the fullness of what you've given to me, that there will be enough left over if I give you of the first, if I dedicate the first bit unto you. This principle is well expressed and perhaps best expressed in the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says this, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruit of all thine increase. 
So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. So Solomon gives a principle here. First exemplified in Abel, mirrored in the idea of the tithe, and well expressed here. That to give the first of my increase to the Lord is to honor him, to trust him. Now, as we think through this concept then of the tithe and of the first fruits and how it connects to the New Testament, there's one more Old Testament account that I want to introduce you to. It's a very, very important one as it relates to worship in giving. This principle is found throughout both Old Testament and New Testament, but it is perhaps best reflected and expressed in King David. In 2 Samuel 24, David sins. He sins in numbering the people. He should not have done that. He should have just trusted the Lord. It didn't matter how many people he had in his armies. The Lord would give him the victory. But he numbers the people, and this was counted as sin to him. So the prophet comes to David and gives him a choice of consequences. He says, because you sinned, because you numbered the people, you can have your choice of three different consequences. Either you can have seven years of famine, you can have three months of fleeing before your enemies, or you can have three days of pestilence, of plague. Well, David says, it's better to fall into the hand of God than it is to fall into the hand of man. So I choose the three days of pestilence. In those three days, the Bible says 70,000 people died in Israel due to this pestilence. So David is watching as he, the representative of this nation that is Israel, he chose to sin. And because of he, a man in a position of authority, chosen by God to lead this people, because of the sin that he committed, and this happens, leaders, fathers, businessmen, the choices you make don't just affect you. David sits and watches as 70,000 of his people die because he chose to number the people. Because of his sin as a leader in the nation. And David, as he sees the cost of his sin upon the people, he prays to the Lord. And as he prays to the Lord, the Lord stops the destruction. And the Bible says that, that, that the angel of the Lord stopped this plague, this destruction at the threshing place of a man named Aurana the Jebusite. And the prophet Gad then comes to David and he tells him, he commands him to rear up an altar to the Lord at the threshing floor where God ceased this pestilence. And David obeys this command. So we pick up reading in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 19. The Bible says this, And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Aruna said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Aruna said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good to him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt offering and threshing instruments and other instruments of the oxen for wood. So Aruna just says, you don't need to buy it off of me. Take it. Take the, take the land, take oxen, take the instruments, take everything that you want to do this thing. All these things did Aruna, verse 23, as a king give unto the king. And Aruna said unto the king, the Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said, Notice this, the king said to Aruna, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. 
Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which did cost me nothing. So David brought, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Worship, apart from some degree of personal sacrifice, is empty worship, Christian. Worship is designed to cost you something. God forbid, David says, that I would worship God with only that which has cost me nothing, with the leftovers, with the freebies. That's not, that's not how worship works. Worship, intrinsic in the concept of worship, is a little bit at least of sacrifice. The cost of worship reflects value to that worship. It has, again, it has nothing to do with the amount. The cost, not the amount, the cost. I will not burn, give burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which did cost me nothing. May I show you the difference between the amount and the cost through the teachings of Jesus? Then we'll move to some other New Testament principles. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much, a high amount. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. Not more in amount, but a much higher cost. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all she had, even all her living. Jesus sat against the treasury and saw many people casting a large amount of money into the treasury. Then came that poor woman, and the Bible says that she gave but two of what our King James Bible calls mites, making one farthing. Now, we won't get into the differentiation. One of the things the King James Bible did is they took uh, Roman currency and they translated it to English currency. So the mites and the farthings, this was English currency. Uh, but suffice it to say that in Roman currency, um, this farthing would be about one-tenth, be about a tithe, about a tenth of what would generally considered to be a day's wage. Now, Jesus had nothing to say about the amounts of money being put into the treasury on that day, as men brought a bunch of money and piled it into this treasury. But what he did have something to say about was the cost of the amount that each put in. The others gave of their abundance. It cost them very little to do what they were doing on that day. But that woman gave of all her living. It was not much in amount, but it was at great cost. And that elevated the worship of that woman on that day. Because she did not give to the Lord of that which cost her nothing. It cost her something to give on that day. And she could have looked and said, well, my two mites is not really consequential considering all the other stuff. The priests of the temple don't really need my two mites. They've got all this other money coming in. See, but that wasn't the point. That wasn't why she was doing it. She wasn't giving to the priests of the temple. She was giving to the Lord on that day. And Jesus regarded that. Let's continue with some other of Jesus' teachings found in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 38 to 42. 
Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. The first concept in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus speaks to in some way, shape, or form on giving is the idea that we hold our possessions loosely. Uh, we talked about this not too long ago. I think it was a Tuesday night. Uh, this isn't explicitly talking about the idea that if anyone ever comes up and asks for money, you should, without even thinking about it, just give them whatever they ask for. Uh, that would be a good way for uh, us all to um, not be around anymore. Uh, but the idea here is that we never allow the physical possessions that we have to stand in the way of properly representing Jesus Christ. If we take this verse ultra-literally, then, of course, our lives will be pillaged of all of our assets. But the mindset that says, I will hold what I have loosely, I will live with an open hand, I will never allow possessions to stand in the way of ministry, a mindset, that mindset is a mindset in Jesus' teaching as it relates to our physical possessions. So we find this in Matthew 5, as it relates to our physical possessions and the nature of giving. Jesus would then go on to say this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, the idea of alms being giving, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thine left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and the Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Here we see another command as it relates to the idea of giving within the New Testament. Not only related to holding our possessions loosely, like we saw in Matthew 5, but also about the heart of true giving unto the Lord. It's a heart of worship. It is a personal idea. We do not give to compare ourselves to others. We do not give to be seen of men. We do not give to be commended of men. But what we give, we give to God, not to men. We give in this way in secret, trusting that the Father who sees in secret will reward us openly. We see two direct commands as it relates to giving thus in Scripture. The first is that the church would feel the weight of responsibility to meet the needs of those whom have been ordained and dedicated to the lives of ministry. We'll talk more about that in a second. The second, that the church would feel the weight of responsibility to meet the needs of the poor, the weak, and the vulnerable. So we have these two commands that Jesus has given, and they give way to to the purpose of giving within the church. So we see in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 7-14. through Who goeth to warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? See I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partakers of his hope. If we, that would be Paul speaking of the apostles, 
have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be a partaker of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So Paul tells the church here, as we think through the purpose of giving, Jesus gave a couple of principles, hold things loosely and give as unto the Lord and not unto men. Now we look at what the church is actually commanded to do as it relates to giving. And the first thing that, that, that Paul says is that God has ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Now, a while ago, I asked a question that I never actually answered. If there's no direct command toward a tithe or a first fruits in the New Testament, then why has the church taught it so directly throughout its history? And this is one of the reasons why. Because Paul, in this passage, among several others, appeals to the same Old Testament principles in supporting the minister as we find in the Old Testament. In other words, Paul says, you should give unto the preachers of the gospel that they may live and, and devote themselves to the things of the gospel. In the same way, the Old Testament nation of Israel gave to the priests. Going even so far as to using the priests as an example of what this looks like. And since the priests were supported by the tithe, naturally many churches throughout time have said, well, then... I guess the church is still supposed to be supported by the tithe. And this is good logic. To that end, a tithe is not a wrong thing. It's not a wrong idea in the mind of a Christian. Giving a proportional 10% of the first fruits of our increase unto the Lord has a natural and a right extension of the principles at play. Now, the problem comes when I get up in the pulpit and I say, Thus saith the Lord, thou mustest give 10%. Thou mustest give a first fruit. And the reason why that's a problem is because we don't really find that in the command of Scripture. The thus saith the Lord that we actually do find here is this. The men who labor in word and doctrine have the right to expect to be taken care of by the people that are benefited by his ministry. And even in this, by the way, if we see here in 1 Corinthians 9, that does not mean the minister has to accept it. Paul says we had the right to expect this, but we did not actually take advantage of this ourselves. Rather, they labored because they felt in several different places that if they were to take from those with whom they were teaching, that they would actually be lauded in with a bunch of false teachers who were simply doing what they were doing for the money and that they would actually ruin or, or harm the credibility of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean they were not supported at all. If you recall reading in Philippians, Paul says that the Philippian church sent once and again to his needs. And he said that he would even, uh, that, that he would live off of their generosity to him so that he would not have to ask the churches that he was ministering to directly to, to meet his needs. So we know that Paul was a tent maker and that he would live sometimes that way. But we also see that there were many times where churches such as the Church of Philippi would send him money so that he could live off of their money and not be a burden to the church that he was ministering in or not reflect poorly upon the gospel if the particular culture within which he was would, would see it as a dishonorable thing for him to simply live off of the fruit of the gospel until they could be discipled and, and taught in these things. 
So even then, even as we see Paul say that this is the expectation and obligation and that those who preach the gospel have the right to expect this thing of those uh, unto whom they minister, it's not a requirement that the, gospel, that, 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 that the preacher or the pastor accept it. So that's the first principle. The first principle that we find in the New Testament as it relates to giving is this. That the church take care of the minister. This principle is here in 1 Corinthians 9. It's repeated in 1 Timothy 5 and Galatians chapter 6. It's actually very strongly precedented in the scriptures. That God's people are compelled to meet the needs of the ministers whom they have ordained in their midst. And particularly, 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 7 says, they who, that minister in word and in doctrine. Now, the second principle that we see, as I've already mentioned, the first is to to meet the needs of the minister of the gospel. The second is to meet the needs of those who are poor, vulnerable, and weak in their midst. And there are also several passages which speak to this, but none perhaps as clear as 2 Corinthians 9. So 1 Corinthians 9 is the first commission to the church. 2 Corinthians 9 is the second. Verse 1 says, For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. Skipping to verse 5. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye have noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he that hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth us, causeth, causeth through us, excuse me, thanksgiving to God. So Paul introduces this section of the epistle saying he is writing concerning the ministry to the saints. He is actually speaking of a collection which he was taking for those that were in Jerusalem who were at this time deeply uh, persecuted for their faith. And he was collecting of the churches of, of, of Galatia and the churches of Macedonia and the churches of Achaia and offering that he would then take to the church in Jerusalem to help them in their time of need. And comparing scripture with scripture, we find calls uh, for helping numerous types of people in need. The persecuted believers, James chapter 1 verse 27 calls for us to help the fatherless and the widows. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 calls us to labor with our hands that we may have to give to them that have need. We're called in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 9 to care for one another physically. Pretty much all of Romans chapter 12 speaks to the same idea. But the principle as reflected in 2 Corinthians 9 here is this. The man who gives sparingly will reap sparingly. The man who fails to open his hand should not expect the Lord's hand to be open toward him. But this giving that we're called to do, just as much as God desires it to be bountiful in substance, that we are, he desires us to be a generous people. Notice the manner in which he calls for us to give it. As every man, according as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, 
but rather we are called to give as cheerful givers. If you are just giving, giving to the needs of the church or giving to the needs of others because you have to, because of necessity, if you are giving begrudgingly, may I say this with all love, keep your money. God doesn't need your money. God wants your heart. That's what God wants. That's what God's asking for. To this end, it does no one here any good for me to get up and to tell you that if you aren't tithing, you're robbing God. That God requires this thing of you. If we were under the law, that would be true, but... We've got a lot of scripture telling us that that's not the case. What God wants from you, Christian, is that you would give. I'm I'm not saying God doesn't want you to give. He does. There's a lot of New Testament scripture commanding you to do so. But he wants you to give bountifully in faith. As you would purpose in your heart. Not grudgingly. Not of necessity as a cheerful giver. And as we do this thing, we see here, we see the same thing in Galatians chapter 6. The Bible, when it speaks of this sowing and reaping principle, we apply this sowing and reaping principle in a lot of ways in the Christian church. We talk about sin, that if you sow to the flesh, you love the flesh, reap corruption. That if you sow to the spirit, you will reap life everlasting. That's Galatians 6. But you know what? When when, when Paul is saying that in Galatians chapter 6, do you know what he's talking in reference to? Giving. When Paul gives that principle here in 2 Corinthians 9, you know what he's talking about? Giving. So there is something to this idea that we, as we sow sparingly, will reap sparingly. That as we sow bountifully. But not in the Ponzi scheme sort of a way. Not in the spiritual seed money sort of a way. Not in the you give your $1 and expect $10,000 in return sort of a way. Not in the televangelist sort of a way. Because that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about giving, are we? We're not talking about amounts. We're talking about cost. We're not talking about money. We're talking about worship. And what you give will abound back to you. The worship you give, the spirit with which you give it, you give bountifully, not because you've got a lot of money and the church needs a lot of money, you give bountifully out of worship to the Lord and you'll receive in turn. Mark it down. Doesn't mean that you're going to receive bags and bags of cash on your doorstep. It means that you will receive of the Lord that which is the fruit of honest uh, worship before the Lord. Spiritual fruit. Now, will he take care of your needs? Yeah. We sang about it this morning, right? The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. We extended that. I have been young, now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He will take care of you. That's there too. But we are not a part of a great pyramid scheme. We are not a part of a pay-to-play scheme. This is not what, this is not what the church is. God will take care of you. But the point of giving, Christian, is worship. And that's where the bounty will return. To this end, I just want to hit five points very briefly as we close. It's going to take everything that I said and kind of knit it all together. Number one, 
We give a first fruits because God is worthy of our trust and of our priority. There is no New Testament command directly, either unto the tithe or unto the first fruits directly. The tithe has historically been an extension of Paul's teaching, comparing giving to the minister to giving to the priest. The first fruits is a little bit more established in principle. When we look at that Proverbs 3 principle, we see that this is a, a strongly established principle in Scripture. But the point is this the essence of the first fruits principle is that you are giving to God your first and not your last, your best and not your worst. You are reflecting to Him faith that he is the one both that gave you this bounty and that he has given you enough of this bounty and that he will continue to give you of his bounty. And this is a good thing. I believe it's right and good. I'm not here today to try to convince any of you to stop tithing. Believe me, that's not my goal today. But we should think about what we do and why. And it ought to be for the right reason. So, we give because God is worthy of our trust and of our priority. That's what the first fruits is intended to reflect. That is what we're doing with our giving. And if it's not that, then it needs to become that, Christian. That's what your giving needs to become. Trust, worth, priority. When you put money into that box back there, that, that's, what you're, that, that's what it's supposed to be about. Number two. We give of our possessions because worship is supposed to cost us something. Worship ought to cost you something, Christian. This is why we give of our money, because money is something that is pretty essential to us. But you know what? That's also why we do some other things here at Legacy Baptist Church. This is why I'm in a suit on a Sunday morning. It's not to be stodgy. It's not to be traditional. It's not so that I can... Dress above the crowd so that you'll give me more credibility. That's not why I wear a suit on a Sunday morning. I'm not here so that I can judge those who can't afford nice clothes. That's not why I wear a suit on a Sunday morning. I mean, this suit was like a $5 thrift store suit. I'm not, I'm not, didn't put a lot of money into this. This shirt and tie probably given to me by my mom. She gives me most of my shirts and ties. It's just how it is. Moms never stop being moms. However, the reason why some might desire to dress up on a Sunday morning is because it reflects in their disposition, them giving of their time to make themselves presentable, that they have sacrificed something to be here on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's money, maybe it's comfort, maybe it's their time, maybe it's their convenience. Worship, it's not a bad thing that worship costs us a little something. Now again, I'm not saying that every single person needs to come in in a suit and tie on next Sunday morning. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, the reason why some, myself included, do so is as a means by which to reflect unto the Lord something. To give the Lord something. And if I can reflect unto Him a little bit more worth unto His name in the manner in which I present myself on a Sunday morning, that's something that in my heart I feel has value. And so I do it. If I'm only here for any of the other reasons I stated, wearing a suit and tie, then it's, 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 it's pretty useless. It's not worth it. Certainly not doing anything of, of spiritual value. <clears throat> and the idea that our worship costs us something 
is not only acceptable, but by biblical principle and precedent, without costing us something, worship means very little. Worship should cost you something, Christian. And maybe that cost, maybe the highest um, essence of cost to you is not money. Maybe there's something more costly to you than money that is actually more worthy of you giving to the Lord. Maybe your time is more valuable to you than your money. Well, then maybe the thing that you ought to think about giving to the Lord every month is time rather than money. Or maybe your abilities are actually of a greater cost than your money. Well, then maybe it's time for you to think through how you can give your abilities to the Lord so that you can show Him some cost in your worship. Point number three, we give with discretion because God does not share honor with men. Ulterior motives are the death of worship, Christian. And so to that end, in the church, ulterior motives are the death of giving. It is inevitable that there are people who will know what you give and how much you give. There's, you can, especially in our church, we, we have arranged it as such that you could completely give anonymous, anonymously through blank envelopes, cash giving, the box in the back, slipping it in when no one's looking. It's possible. But the question is not actually whether or not you can successfully navigate the minefield of accountability to give anonymously. That's not the point of not giving your alms to be seen of men. But rather the question is this, what motivates your giving? If what you want is the praise of men and what you get is the praise of men, congratulations, you got what you want, you have your reward, expect nothing from God because you're not actually sowing into his field. You're sowing into the field of your own pride. You will reap nothing but your own pride. This is the sowing and reaping principle as properly applied to giving. But if you sow to the spirit, you will of the spirit reap life everlasting. If you give to be seen of God and God alone, because that's who you're giving to, then God who sees in secret will reward you openly. Consequently, this is one of the reasons why we choose to give with the box in the back rather than the plate. Because I remember growing up and seeing my parents go through all manner of of strange contortions to try to conceal when, when they're putting something in the plate, right? You cup it in your hand really carefully and make sure it's all folded, do this thing. and So, so that you're, you're giving and you're trying to live up to that principle of Matthew chapter 6 and praise God for that. Let's just skip all of that, put a box in the back. When we pass a plate, we do so because we're giving together to bless someone. So that's a corporate event. That's something that we're doing together. We're coming together to, to give to the need of someone. We're, we're encouraging participation. We love the fact that we get to work together to bless someone else. Sure, we'll pass a plate. Everything else, let's put it in the box in the back. That's why we do it. It maximizes the possibility of you giving without feeling the pressure to do so without, uh, allevi- and alleviating the public nature of the giving. Four, we give with cheerfulness because only a willing heart is a worshiping heart. I said it already, but I say it again. If you are just giving to the church or even to the needs of others because you feel you have to, just keep your money. God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. Giving is worship. And worship is only worship if it is not grudgingly nor of necessity, but rather it is an expression of your heart before the Lord. Worship is when 
giving is what I actually mean, not just what I do. Understand the difference? When I give because it's what I mean, not what I do. I give to reflect worth unto the Lord, not just to check off a box. God doesn't need our money. God wants our hearts. Us giving of our money, us giving of our time, us giving of our abilities, these things are intended to flow out of a heart of gratitude and devotion. Not of empty compulsion, not of manipulation, not of guilt. Compulsion, manipulation, and guilt are not principles by which God has ever operated. They're principles of cold and empty religion, but they are not principles of a relationship with the true and living God. Number five. We give with an unreserved and open hand because that is how God gives. As you grow and you learn to love the Lord, what you'll find is that the reason why you're giving in such a manner is because that's how God has given to you. God has opened his hand and abundantly poured out to you, both spiritually and physically, his blessings. And what else can we do but do the same? If we want to be like our Savior. If we want to be like our Father. And what more can a disciple do than be as his master? To this end, we ought to feel as free to give as our God has given to us. For though it is God, not you nor me that owns the cattle on a thousand hills, yet that God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills just happens to be my Father. And so I can know that if I am supposed to give, that as I do give with an open hand, bountifully, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, but as a cheerful giver, that the Father, which I have in heaven, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, will take care of me. In Genesis 14, we come across the first tithe. Within the law of first, this is significant. Now, the Genesis 14 account doesn't actually tell us a whole lot about the tithe. The Old Testament gives us glimmers of, of what the tithe was intended to reflect. As we carry that over into this time of grace, we carry it over in this way. That we may be this giver, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, but that we are yielding of that which we have to the Lord, by principle, the first of that which we have, a proportional amount of that which we have, as a means by which to reflect unto God His worth, our trust in Him, His priority in our lives, and our determination that we will be as He is, generous to others as He has been to us. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.